welcome back to Sextras, where we talk about sex and all the extras. I'm Honey. And I'm Maria. And welcome back to our family and parenting and sex mini-series. Yeah. It's our third mini-series of season three. And in this episode, we're joined by author and Professor Jessica Hendry Nelson. Jessica has a book coming out called Joy Rides Through the Tunnel of Grief. It comes out September 1st and it is essentially a memoir, creative non-fiction about her experience kind of with her ex-husband coming to terms with wanting to have a kid her family dynamics, her female friendships, basically just like hits all the points that we talk about on the podcast. And yeah, so we had a really great chat with her. And obviously, as part of our family and parenting mini series, she is a great guest because she's got a 10 week old baby. And she tells us basically how she got to that point and how she made the decision to have a baby and it's a great story so we hope you enjoy yeah let's get into it thank you so much for joining us jessica it's so nice to have you here in our family and parenting mini series which is very apt for you because you've got a 10 week old baby thank you so much for having me no i'm really i'm really excited to talk about it yeah so how how's parenting going what's it like <laughs> to kind of adjust you are you feeling okay? Are you feeling tired? What's going on? <laughs> I feel, how do I feel? I feel, um, <laughs> I feel absolutely insane, but in this kind of like, I, it's so, I've been having this conversation with friends who have had kids prior to my having a kid and I just want to say to them, like, why didn't you warn me? Like, why didn't you tell I'm I'm mad at them. (laughs) Because it really is the most radical, like punk thing I've ever done. You know, I just it's it's so hard. It's so (laughs) and and so exhilarating and so beautiful and and so insane. And um and they just kind of like look at me like, how would we describe this? Like how would how would you describe this? So, and so I find myself having, you know, the same difficulty trying to, you know, explain how we're doing or how it is or how I'm doing, <laughs> you know, it, it's, um, it really, it, it maybe is this like law. I had this feeling in the few first few weeks, like this is the biggest, like most corrupt secret that people have been keeping forever. <laughs> That this is insane and they just don't tell other parents because or other, you know, people because nobody would have kids and that whole thing. Um, but it really is like an unfolding, you know, it's like falling in love. You know, how do you describe what it feels like to fall in love, you know, mm. but in this in this new way that you've never experienced before. And so I didn't have that. Well, I mean, you know, I did have, you know, I loved her immediately when she was born and it was a really beautiful and terrifying and bloody sweaty gorgeous mess of a moment but you know that love is really it's you know I was told like you fall in love and that's it and then you have this like rapture that you're just kind of swept up into and 
Um, it wasn't like that for me. Maybe it is for other people, but mm-hmm. for me, it was, it's, it's like I fall in love more and more every day. It's just like this slow, deep unfolding of love that is hard to manage sometimes. I mean, it's terrifying. It's really the scariest, you know, I mean, falling in love with a partner, a romantic partner is scary. This is like the next level terrifying because you just look at this beautiful creature and you're so vulnerable suddenly you're so (laughs) vulnerable and she's so vulnerable and I'm trembling (laughs) and uh, alive and exhausted and um hot you know we live in the south in Richmond Virginia um and I'm you know I'm just riding it out yeah it sounds, yeah, I can't even imagine, but it sounds intense and I mean, yeah, amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's not boring, you know? I mean, that's that's the one thing, you know, I've heard some people complain that parenting is boring. Yeah. I don't know, for me, it, it has not been boring right. so far. That That is for sure. <laughs> Keep you on your toes. <laughs> Forever. For the rest of your life now. <laughs> Yeah. Can we kind of go back? We're kind of here in the lead up to the release of your book, which again, massive congratulations. I've read it and it was amazingly written and just like really insightful into everything we talk about in the podcast, which is obviously why you're here today. So yeah, it would be great to kind of like go back even to, so we're both 23, to go back to like I don't know, when you were our age, like what kind of relationships you were having, whether you wanted to be a mom, like what was what was going on and like how did you build up to this moment? Yeah, I had, um, I mean, in some ways, maybe a, a more unconventional 20s for the way that most people experience it now. It, in as much as like I was with my ex-husband from the age of 18, and so we spent all of that time, all of my 20s, you know, together. And and that was for lots of, I mean, you know, mostly because we loved each other. And, you know, and we were we were good together, you know, for a long time. But I didn't get to experience, which I was telling you earlier, like, I love your podcast. I wish I had had something like that in my 20s. But I didn't get to experience a lot of that the experiences that that people go through in their 20s you know dating a lot of people and figuring themselves out and who they are sexually and in relationship to one another and you know what they want out of a relationship how to be you know because in a lot of ways you I just was accustomed to this one relationship so you learn how to be in that relationship but you don't learn who you are outside of that particular context, right? And so, you know, you get into certain patterns, which, you know, are probably more or less healthy. And we did, you know, like a lot of people in relationship in their 20s are sort of living out the various traumas you experienced as a child and doing your best to function as adults and not knowing really what you're doing. And so we we did a lot of that. But you know, we grew together. I feel like we grew up together in a lot of ways. And at 23, let's see, 
where was I at 23? I just graduated college. We moved to New York. This very, you know, the stereotypical, like, go west for young writers, right? Except you just, you go to New York. And I did, I was teaching. I did a Teach for America, which is a program where they take students right out of college and they you go through this intense six-week training over the summer and it's like boot camp and it's kind of scary too we had chants and <laughs> you know acronyms for everything and we would be up for 24 hours at a time studying and I remember my ex-husband Nick came to one of these events and I, I forget what it was like a, a celebration something like that and we're all sta- standing up there chanting and we're singing the song. And at that point, I was so exhausted and sleep deprived. I thought that this was normal. Like, I didn't realize how absurd we must have looked. And we, we left and he's like, I think you're in a cold. Like, I, I'm not sure that this is good. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Um, and, it, you know, the idea is lovely. And they send you into schools all across the country in areas that need really good teachers and have a hard time recruiting teachers with, you know, basically the premise that you're young and idealistic and you'll do whatever it takes and you'll be willing to do that for, you know, $30,000 a year, whatever they're paying you. And it's insane. So I was teaching at a school in Brooklyn and I was a terrible teacher. I had no idea what I was doing. And um, that made me question having kids, you know, I, they were awesome and beautiful and I had no idea how to deal with behavior issues or you know, all of the various like emotional and physical abuses that these kids, you know, were suffering. And so I quit that and I did what I knew how to do, which is I started waiting tables in New York, but still in this context of this very safe relationship so you know we were for each other at that time like islands of safety and I had had a you know a pretty tumultuous childhood we'll say my father died when I was 17 you know he was an addict and an alcoholic my whole life my brother was at that point already into his addiction to heroin and so you know the Nick to me was a very much a safe place, you know, or seemed to be a safe place. And so, you know, we got to do a lot of, I got to do a lot of growing and moving. We moved a lot in our 20s and exploring, but always with this, what felt like this island of safety, like on this island of safety. And And that, I think for, you know, that worked well for us for a while. I think I motivated him. He was from a small town in Maine and probably would not have done any of the moving or exploring or traveling, you know, that we did. Otherwise, you know, he needed someone to pull him out of his, his comfortable environment. And I needed someone to be a comfortable environment. So, you know, we complimented each other in our, in our twenties, but it did mean that you know, the idea of having kids was something that we didn't, we didn't talk about for a long time because we didn't need to, you know, we were, we were young. I always felt like it was something we would do later. And we took that for granted and we didn't have that conversation. 
which I would never recommend if it's something, whether it's something you want to do or don't want to do, you know, you have to have that conversation. And we just, we just didn't have that conversation for a very long time until in a lot of ways it was, it was too late. And so let's see, we moved around a lot. We both went to graduate school. I was writing, I wrote my first book right out of graduate school. We had moved at that point to Vermont and we were living in this tiny cabin on the edge of Lake Champlain that was built in the 1920s. It had no insulation. It was so cold. It was mold ridden and adorable and fit every romantic ideal I had about being a writer in the world. It was so cliche. And that's where I finished my first book. And we lived in Vermont for seven years and, you know, towards the end of our 20s. And at some point I started to start thinking about, you know, wanting to have kids one day and we would have these conversations and he was really reticent. And I knew that. And I was ambivalent. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew I wanted to figure it out. And Mm -hmm. he wasn't, you know, he, and this is, you know, to his credit, he was, he was as clear as he could be at that time about not wanting kids. And because I was naive and, you know, young, not to blame it on youth necessarily, but I I still believed that I could change his mind, which is the absolute worst, worst idea you could (laughs) come up with if you want to have children. Because the last thing you want to do is have a child with somebody who does not want to have a child. (laughs) But in my naivety, you know, I just thought he needed to meet said child and he would fall madly in love. And be so happy that I convinced him to do this this Mm -hmm. thing. And in hindsight, thank God I didn't have, you know, that child with him. Because you need a partner. I need a partner who is, you know, 100% in with you. Mm -hmm. I need a partner. Um, Some people can do it on their own. And they are fucking rock stars. Mm -hmm. But I I don't know how you you could do that. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, so we started having that conversation, you know, late into our relationship. We had gone through some tumultuous things. I was staying with a friend and he was having, you know, emotional affairs and I was having relationships with women. And, you know, we just we were separated. And I think we were both trying to pack in what little bit of experimenting and exploring (laughs) we needed to do in our 20s in like this three month period unsuccessfully because that's not how it works and you know because we loved each other and because we didn't know how else to be in the world we got back together and we probably I don't want to say we should have broken up at that point but Mm -hmm. because things work out the way they work out but um you know I think we got back together out of fear mostly fear of being apart you know and I guess there's a word for that, right? <laughs> so, like we were pretty codependent in a lot of ways, um, but we did. We got back together, and a few years later, we got married. And at that point, I still knew that he didn't want to have kids, and I knew that I wanted the option of exploring it. And the one thing I knew more than anything is, if there's like another shade of living 
I need to, I wanted to experience that, you know, I wanted it all. And so I, you know, it's a kind of, I don't know, says something about desire maybe, or gluttony even, that there's so many ways to be in the world. Like I want to be Maria right now in Paris and I want to be you, honey, in London. And like, I just want, I want all of these experiences. I want, but you can't have them all, right? But mm-hmm. I knew if there was an available experience, I wanted to to try to have that. Like I didn't want to go through this one life and not have this, you know, really wild experience. Like you get to make a person. How insane is that? So our marriage after, you know, 12 years of being together, our marriage was was pretty short. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, you know, that was his his choice. I mean, I I thank him silently every day. You know, I don't we're not in communication anymore, but he finally pulled the trigger and came home one day. It felt to me at that time so unexpected. We had purchased a house in Vermont the year prior and had been slowly renovating this house and working on it and building it. And I thought if I could just, you know, get this house together and like make the homestead, then he would want to have a child with me, you know, and all of these thoughts, you know, I I think weren't fully articulated to myself at that point, but I think that's what I believed. And he wasn't going to change his mind about it. And, and I'm so glad he didn't, you know, it would have been a terrible (laughs) choice for him and for me. And he did, you know, he walked in one day after basketball practice. I, I write about it in the book and he was sort of writhing in pain because, you know, he was probably too old to be playing basketball with these 22 year old guys who were twice his size. <laughs> and he's rolling around on the floor in front of the wood stove and, you know, and said, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to move out. I want to, you know, separate. And that mm-hmm. was the beginning of a very slow and dark period. But I think him, you know, every day for that, because he was right, you know, we, it was a chapter that we needed to close. And I don't know, you know, how he's doing now, but I suspect he's grown a lot since we broke up. And I know I have. And it was the best thing for me, I got to build this life that I wanted, and not this life that I was trying to fit into, you know, and I was trying so hard to be the person he wanted me to be and you know had even at some point just said to him yeah okay you know forget it like I don't need to have kids Mm -hmm. you know at that point I you know I loved him so much and I couldn't imagine life without him I couldn't imagine who I was without him so I didn't have a context in which to imagine myself because we had been together our whole young adult lives I didn't know what else who else to be? And that's, you know, embarrassing now, but it's also the truth, you know, it just, that's just how it evolved. And I don't think I would have pulled that trigger, you know, so, you know, I would have kept working at it. I would have kept working and working and working because I didn't, I didn't imagine that like losing this love, the love that we had would be worth the the price of another kind of love you know it didn't that was a kind of math I couldn't square you know why would I lose love in order to gain love it just I couldn't I couldn't figure it out Mm -hmm. so that was one of the hardest things 
I've ever gone through, really. I mean, I've gone through a lot of shit, right? And getting divorced, you know, at 33 from my partner of 15 years was definitely one of the hardest and one of the darkest. So four years later and some failed experiments later, I ended up taking a job here in Richmond, Virginia and, you know, met my current partner and he was and is just, you know, the right, I didn't want, I knew I didn't want to have a child alone necessarily. And I was okay. Well, I don't know if I was okay not having a child. I don't know that, but it didn't feel like it was this thing I must do. But it felt like if I, in the right situation, I, I definitely wanted that option. Mm-hmm. And and he is the right person for me to have a child with. That's very, very clear. And knowing now how much work, you know, is required. <laughs> and I thought I knew, right? Like I had nannied for years in my 20s. Even when I was in graduate school, I was nannying for kids. I nannied for twin newborns at one point. So I thought I had a sense and I had no idea, no idea. And so I'm so grateful, you know, that I have this partner who is so down and and engaged and in, just as in love as I am and and also, you know, willing to talk through how fucking hard it is and how we miss our old life at times and mourn it. And, you know, it's it's part a grieving process too. I didn't realize that, you know, but for for me anyway, it's as much as it is like a becoming and a beautiful thing, it's also a grieving process because you are losing the way you move through the world your entire life. And that shifts, you know, and your identity shifts, of course, and your freedom shifts and everything is 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 changed. And so mm. whatever you you loved about that life is still there, but you have to recapitulate yourself and it's going to be it's going to look very different. And I'm still in the middle of that process of figuring out what it's going to look like and how I'm going to retain the parts of my life that I loved, my autonomy and my freedom and my work and traveling and, you know, everything that really matters to me, um, you know, is different. It's just different. And I, you know, you have to, you have to figure that out. That was really interesting because I feel like that experience of being with someone and feeling like you kind of like can't exist without them is like something that so many people kind of go through in their twenties. Like, I don't know. I feel like there is a world or a life where you get to know yourself when you're single and you're obviously like trying to figure all those things out but then that can also happen in a relationship but then as you kind of described at some point the conversations that you didn't have kind of caught up with you so I'm wondering where that came from how you came to terms with the fact that you did want to have kids and that you couldn't figure out whether you did or what that was going to look like with him it was not a decision that I had been able to make. I, you know, at that time in my life, I felt like that decision was taken from me, Mm. which is the wrong perspective. You know, I mean, that that's just where I was at that time. But I felt that he had taken that choice from me because 
you know, we were married, we were, we had a house together, we had been together for 15 years. And because I wasn't willing to lose any of those things or sacrifice them, you know, then the thing that was sacrificed was the option of motherhood. And rather than imagine a circumstance in which I could be a mother, I gave up that that vision because it didn't fit into the vision I had in front of me. And so that's one of the great gifts that he gave me in that moment, even though it didn't feel like a gift at all at that time, was he gave me my my choice back. You know, he gave me my autonomy back. And whether he that was his intention or not, I don't know, you know, whether that was part of his real decision making or not, you know, that's that's what he gave me. And so I don't know that I ever decided, you know, I don't know if it's a thing that you can really, I mean, I guess people do decide, but it, it really felt like a kind of leap into the abyss. My current partner and I have only been together for three years. At two years, you know, I was getting older and he's slightly younger. And, you know, I just said, you know, I was very clear with him from the beginning, you know, this is something that I'm interested in and I'd like to have the choice. And is this something that you're interested in? And to his, to his credit, he was like, yeah, I'm down for that. I think, you know, we were in our first like three months of dating. (laughs) And I'm like, look, I just want to be really clear and upfront. I don't want to wait to have this conversation, but I'm 38 and And, um, he did not freak out and he did not run away and he was down to ride it out (laughs) and see what happens. And, And so, you know, we thought when we started trying last summer, you know, because of my age or and because this is kind of what I saw with a lot of my friends who had tried to get pregnant, we thought it would take a really long time and it didn't. So (laughs) we got pregnant right away and we were both a little freaked out by that, but we adjusted. We took a long walk in which neither of us, during which neither of us said a word because we couldn't really speak. But I think the other, you know, the, and this is part of what I'm writing about in the book is, you know, deciding to have a child in a family where death feels always imminent um, was very hard. You know, my brother has been a heroin addict for I don't know, 20, over 20 years now and has overdosed more times probably than I even know about, you know, has come so close to death so many times and having his imminent death feel like it's like living, you know, loving someone with a terminal illness. You know, if you have someone in Mm. your life who suffers from substance abuse disorder, you know, they're their life, it it often will feel like their life could end at any moment. And so living within that cloud of anticipatory grief is a tremulous terrain. And to be honest, one of my biggest fears Mm -hmm. was that he would die while I was pregnant and that the stress of that would somehow cause me to miscarry. I don't know if that's possible, but it was a fear that I carried with me for many years. And I think kept me from fully accepting the fact that I wanted a child was because I knew that this other loss felt like it was always looming. Mm -hmm. And when we did get pregnant, it was the end of last summer, August, and my brother had had just, you know, just had one of his worst relapses in recent memory. And so it was a, it was a very 
tender place from which to embrace a kind of future when you knew that this person and my, you know, I, my brother and I are, are really close despite that. And so deciding to make this new life when I was afraid that I would lose this person I loved felt really scary. And also not wanting to bring, you know, a kid into this like cycle, mm-hmm. you know, and it was a cycle that I had gone through with him as his sister for 20 years and before that with our father. And so this is a very familiar cycle. I don't know if you have anyone in your life with substance abuse disorder, but it's usually for my brother often manifests with relapse. Then he's in jail. Then he goes to rehab. Then he's sober for a brief period of time. And then he relapses again and, you know, repeat ad nauseum. And I was for many, many years, very wrapped up in that cycle. And so when he would relapse, I would be devastated, you know, and um, it would be hard to to move through the world for a while. And then he would go to jail and it would be like a great relief because at least in jail, I felt like he was safer from himself. It felt like at least he was off the streets and maybe a little bit safer. Mm-hmm. And then in rehab, you know, so these are like the great functioning periods for both of us. Like when he was in jail, when he was in rehab, even, you know, when he, and then he would get to a halfway house and that's when I would start to get nervous again and we would start to build up our relationship and then he inevitably would relapse. And so one of the choices I had to make when I got pregnant or I felt like I had to make is I really, I put up a boundary which I had never done before, but apparently there are these really healthy things and I'm so glad I found boundaries, <laughs> which sounds so naive, but I don't, I, it just came to me later in life, this, this concept. I mean, I say that a little tongue in cheek. I just wasn't willing to, to fully do it. Uh, but I, I did, I put up a hard boundary with my brother for the last year, you know, and have had no communication. And, you know, that was one of the toughest things I've ever done also, you know, was to cut off contact with him. But I felt like while I was pregnant, I just didn't have, I didn't have the emotional wherewithal. I didn't have the strength and I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to channel that energy into anticipating his death anymore. I wanted to channel that energy into anticipating this new life. And that was, that was um, Mm -hmm. the best decision I could have made for myself at that time. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds so difficult. And yeah, I can't even imagine what that's like. In the book as well, you talk a bit about like, the fact that you felt like you were like kind of mothered him in a way as a child and like throughout your life. So do you think that that kind of impacted your perception of mothering and like what expectations came along with being a mother yeah I mean I felt like I was a terrible mother right because I had done such a bad job you know mothering him and um you know because I wasn't equipped Mm -hmm. to be his mother I was his sister and you know our mother was was wonderful um and strong and capable but she was also had been caught up in this codependent cycle for so long she you know was with my father since the age of 14 and had seen him through his addiction 
and then death. And then now she has this child who is having a hard time with substances and she's a single mother and she works in sales and real estate and Mm -hmm. she's working all the time. And, you know, she, I mean, people say this, but it's, I think very true in this case, she did the best job that she knew how to do. But that also meant that there was a gap, you know, there were needs that weren't being met. And one thing that happens in families with addiction is, you know, you often fall into roles and everybody has their role in the family and you play that role, you know, until you learn how to how to do something differently. And it serves you for a while. You know, it served probably served my brother that I took on the role of, you know, in some ways, mothering him in other ways, not. It served me to play the role of the good girl because he was the bad kid, right? So I was the good girl and that was my survival mechanism. And I think that's often a dynamic in siblings where one has substance abuse disorder and the other one doesn't is, you know, they find a measure of safety or feeling of safety through by overachieving, you know? And so people would, the adults in my life, you know, if I was smart and good and got good grades, you know, would tell me how wonderful I was. And that made me feel safe. Right. And that was like the the dynamic that played out. And so, you know, part of what I had to figure out was that obviously it wasn't my fault that my brother suffered from addiction. I had to forgive myself for all of the ways that I felt that I had failed him. And, you know, leaving him for college. I mean, all of these things that I think, you know, in hindsight are very normal, healthy things for someone to want to do. But also in that dynamic, you know, when he was so young and hurting so much, I felt like I abandoned him. And I don't know if he ever felt that way, but it was a feeling I had I had to work through, you know, in order to conceive of being a mother, mm-hmm. you know, and all of the other natural fears, I think that, that, you know, when you have addiction in your family, you know, that, that will crop up when you imagine having your own child. And for anybody, you know, anybody who doesn't want to repeat the patterns of their family, you know, I think that's a kind of a mental and emotional landscape that you have to traverse. Mm-hmm or you do traverse whether you want to or not, you know, as you like enter into parenthood and trying to figure out, you know, what kind of family you want to make and how, you know, you want to take the best of what you were given as a child and do things differently in other ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like coming back to like the expectations in your relationship with your ex-husband, it's kind of interesting what you're saying about like playing up to that kind of good child role and like just how I wonder if that played into the the relationship with your husband or like if that's something that you noticed like at the time even for sure I mean that was a I wanted to be the right partner for him I wanted to be you know I wanted him to be proud of me and this is you know this is not something I'm necessarily proud of now you know in reflection but I do think it's it's quite natural and common. And, and, you know, I want to, I want to talk about it because I think other people have these feelings sometimes and Mm. rather than just feeling ashamed of it, you know, I think we can talk about it, which is, you know, what, what the essay does, you know, what the essays in the book, they're a space to kind of have these conversations about how we 
evolve from our childhood. And often that includes traumas into an adulthood in relationship with one another that isn't always healthy, you know, and, and, you know, we play out these dynamics. So I was definitely playing out that dynamic with, with Nick, you know, I didn't have a father. And not to say that Nick, you know, filled that role for me, but in some ways, he had a kind of paternal energy. He was a very, I mean, maybe he did, maybe he was my surrogate father for a while, right? Like he was, you know, part of our personalities were such that like, he was this like straight arrow and he was very responsible and meticulous. And I was less responsible and less meticulous. (laughs) And, you know, he didn't party and I partied and he was He didn't like to go out. I liked to go out. He was just very much a steady person, I thought, right? And, you know, there were things boiling in him too that I just didn't see or didn't realize for a long time. But I I was definitely trying to please him, you know? I, I desperately wanted his approval. I desperately wanted to be a good girl. You know, my my best friend Jesse and I, we talk about this a lot because we both grew up with this desperate desire to be good. And I think a lot of women are socialized that way, you know, that we are, we, we seek approval at all costs. And mm-hmm. maybe Jesse and I more so than, than most, you know, like we, we desperately have sought approval and I, I wanted that. And so, you know, I went so far as to give up the idea of having a child or give up my options in order to you know, get his approval. And, and, you know, the, like I said, the great gift that he gave me is freeing me from that, that dynamic, you know, and I I really needed to be out of that relationship for those reasons, because I needed to, to learn how to exist in the world with my own approval. Hmm. And it's still something I'm figuring out, you know, I don't think you can just shrug off centuries and centuries of socialization, a few years, but learning how to please myself more than I'm pleasing others is an ongoing journey for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think ultimately then your relationship ended because of your different sort of opinions about having children or do you think it had sort of just run its course? I'm sure it's like a multitude of reasons but sort of if you were to be like looking at it now yeah, I think a lot of things were happening. I think at its root, it had it had run its course. I think there were other things going on in him that that caused him to end the marriage that, you know, were outside of me and separate from me, but his own desires and, you know, wants and needs and things that he wanted to explore both, you know, personally and sexually that, you know, just weren't for me but I think became more and more pressing for him, you know, and again, we didn't, you know, this is part of what the conversations we had in that slow unraveling of our relationship, but, you know, we didn't get to explore much in our twenties sexually or Mm. in relationship with other people. And I think that that's something that we needed to do. And that became very Mm. urgent for him at some point. And that makes sense, right? You know, so that was a big part of it too, that urgency that he felt mm. to do that 
my ambivalence about motherhood. And I think he felt a measure of guilt because he knew, I think he sensed that even if I was saying, you know, I'm willing to not have a, a kid that, you know, he, he sensed that I really did want that option and he wasn't going to be able to give that to me. And, you know, also, you know, that it had run its course. We had reached the point and maybe overreached the point where we were growing together. We were not growing together anymore. We had reached the point where we were stifling each other and each other's potential and joy, really joy. And it was time, you know, it was time. And it is, you know, I wasn't going to be able to do it. So he he managed to do it. And it wasn't easy for him either. You know, I think it was really painful for both of us. And and we both behaved really badly in that process. You know, we didn't do it with the grace that I wish that I would have been able to show, but I was, Mm. you know, I was so hurt and afraid that I, I wasn't able to do that then, but I would, you know, I would do it differently now. Not that I want to go through it again, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But that's always what you want to hear. Like you want to hear that there's, there's growth, not that you do it the same now. Right. So I guess that's good. So yeah, Nick, if you want to come get divorced again, well, I'll do it better this time. <laughs> I'll be a more, a more graceful divorcee. I I also love this is like a different kind of side to the story but I I love how you talk about female friendship as well in the book and how they showed up for you throughout your relationship and then also like when it ended and I just wondered if you could like talk a little bit about that and like what your kind of how you viewed friendship and like how its role in your life in your 20s versus how you view it now yeah I was just God, I love women. I mean, just so I the there's a kind of loving, I think, that women can provide one another and do provide one another that you just you can't I can't get in a relationship with a man, you know, and um it's an empathy, but it's also this just really steadfast, like muscular kind of loving that feels very particular to the way that women are socialized, maybe. And it is true, too, that when, you know, you are in a relationship, your friendships can sometimes become less of the forefront, less present. And that's particularly true, I think, you know, as you get older, you know, in my 20s, and especially my younger 20s, I was able to, you know, friends are so important at that time in your life. And we lose sight of that, I think, Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, there's a risk of losing sight of that when your career starts to become more consuming, your time is taken up in relationship, then you have kids, maybe other things start to, to take precedence. And it was a great reminder to me that when I went through that experience, you know, I've always been fascinated by women and, and often like crave relationships with them. And even from like a very, you know, even as a child, but very shy and not able to cultivate those friendships in the way that I necessarily wanted to. But I did, I did have good friends. I I have great friends. And 
when that experience happened, you know, like any grief, like they just showed up. They just showed up. I mean, sometimes we were processing ad nauseum. Sometimes we were spending hours trying to diagnose what was wrong with Nick and why he was, you know, such a monster. And of course, all of that armchair therapy. And sometimes it was just like sitting there in silence, you know, or Jesse bringing me coffee in bed and just like, you know, reading next to me or going for a drive or drinking wine on the couch or singing or dancing or, you know, or, 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 or just, you know, sleeping in bed with me, like next to me. These are the things like this kind of like active loving and tending to that in this case, women gave me. And I became really interested in that as a practice, like the way that women can can commune with one another, can tend to one another, can help heal one another. And it is a practice. It really is a thing that it's not like all women are good at this, right? Or, or that, you know, women are inherently better at this because I think we're not. But in this case, these women and this woman in that relationship, like they, they showed up in this kind of tending to way that wasn't patronizing. It wasn't mothering. It wasn't caretaking. It was like communing. Um, That felt really powerful. That created Mm -hmm. a kind of energy that I, that got me through those really dark months. You know, it felt like Mm -hmm. we were sitting Shiva together, you know, (laughs) and I didn't look in the mirror either. So that makes sense. I'm so grateful to those people at that time in my life. Like I, I want to be that kind of friend and it was a good reminder that I needed at that point in my, in my early thirties, that how important these relationships are that, you know, we have to keep Mm. deliberately cultivating them. I needed to keep deliberately cultivating them so that we could do this kind of communing together, you know, that like, it's really a survival mechanism. And you know that when you're young, Mm. sometimes we lose sight of that in our culture. Now, you know, we lose sight of the power of that and those dynamics and how integral they are to, to survival really. Mm. And I, you know, I'm relearning that again now as a, as a mother, I, I make some sort of snarky joke in the book that I'm actually embarrassed about now because, well, I'm not embarrassed. It, it just was true at the time, but I had this idea that I didn't want to have to make mommy friends that if I became a mother, you know, we would just, you know, stand around sort of bleary eyed and sleep deprived and, you know, talk about the best diapers and, you know, and it's really, that was all my internalized misogyny, right? Like now I realize all I want are mommy friends. All I want to do is hang out with other mothers and talk about this wild, crazy experience we're having and process that with them and Mm. and commune with them in that way. And I'm lucky enough that I've, you know, I have, I have mommy friends. Thank God I have mommy friends. And how arrogant, (laughs) you know, (laughs) how arrogant to think that and naive to think that that wouldn't be fundamental to, to having children too. And that that is a kind of, it's not, regressive it's not it's actually you know the one of the more powerful things you can do as a mother is find other mothers to to be in relationship with again they're they're like the constant throughout your life and I feel like that really comes across like in the book and yeah 
just in yeah. what you've been saying. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, is there anything else you want to add or share or any advice you want to give? I don't know, <laughs> if, if, except that, you know, I'm not really in the business of advice, except that I do teach young people, right? Like I'm a college professor and my students are in their, you know, their early 20s, mostly some older, you know, some of my graduate students are older, but, um, you know, one of, as, you know, a, a creative writing professor, one of the things that, you know, I, one of the gifts I get is I get to talk to a lot of young people about what their, their personal experiences, because it's a creative nonfiction is mostly what I teach. And, you know, I think for these students, and it's true for me, and I think true for a lot of people, like we have to find a, a place to ask questions and, you know, a place to ask questions that is generative. And essays are just one way to do that. You know, when I was writing this book, and this book took a very long time just because I was living through it. You know, it, it started, you know, I started writing this book well before Nick and I got divorced. And at that time, I was, I was just writing these essays because I wanted to figure out if I could, I had all of this creative energy, like I wanted to make things, I've always wanted to make things, including maybe a, a person. And I didn't know if I could live a life in which that creative imperative played out in art in lieu of children. I didn't know if that would be satisfying to me in this one life. And I, and I wanted to figure that out. And the way that I figure those things out are through essays. You know, essays are, are really the place to, that we, you know, they're a landscape for asking questions and they're a map of how we move through the world and how we change our mind. They map out the process through which we change our mind, I think. And so I get to work with students and teach them that, teach them that way of approaching the essay and it's really exciting to see them go through that, to see other young people go through that process of changing their mind in a way that is, you know, exploratory and, you know, includes research because they're often asking questions that they need to reach out into the world to find other ways of articulating those questions to themselves and creative and digressive, you know, essays are places where we can just be digressive and make associations that we wouldn't necessarily make except that we have the space on the page to do that. And we have a mission to do that. And so, you know, I don't know if I have any advice except that I think all of us need that place, a place to do that kind of work. And I don't, it doesn't have to be done in essay. It could be done in any sort of art form. It could be done in conversation. It can be done in whatever, you know, way, you know, personal way that you approach it, but to do that kind of active muscular you know moving through is can be incredibly powerful and no less important because it's also therapeutic you know there's this one one notion i have to dispel for my students often is that if creative nonfiction or memoir or personal narrative writing or even poetry or fiction is in some way therapeutic to you it is therefore less artistic less than, less intellectual, less interesting, you know, which is really a patriarchal notion that we have to kind of cut through that. In fact, it can be both. It can be, it can be really powerful and therapeutic and also a gorgeous piece of art and that those two things can coexist. And, you know, there's a lot of 
misogyny that underpins this notion that, you know, creative nonfiction or memoir writing is cliche or bad or trite, right? And there, there are lots of memoirs that are bad and cliche and trite, for sure, just as there are, you know, novels and poems and, you know, every other art form. But because we associate it with females or we see it as a more of a female art form, it gets denigrated in this way, which is just another way, you know, that we keep people quiet, women, minorities, you know, and anybody who has a narrative to tell that we don't want to hear, in, you know, culturally, you know, that doesn't fit the model that the patriarchy is trying to, trying to uphold, right? And so my students need to hear that, you know, they, they like all of us, they, they drink the Kool-Aid sometimes, but less so. Like I've found, you know, I've been teaching college now for, I don't know, over 15 years and every year and Gen Z is just, I love Gen Z. Like y'all are awesome. Like you're so awesome and communicative and evolved and interesting and interested and open. And I mean, these are generalizations, but it's, it's what, you know, it's a trend I've noticed. Like every year that I'm in the classroom, um, students become less ashamed of themselves, more comfortable in their skin more open, more interesting. And that's not always true, of course. But, you know, that's it's that's some of the trend I've noticed, which also makes for better writing, you know, better art. That's pretty cool to hear. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you guys are great. Yeah. <laughs> so proud of Gen Z. And it's because of that, you know, it's like just absolute refusal to sort of, you know, be quiet or accept the status quo or feel ashamed or not explore, you know, who you are, the possibilities of the world, your, you know, your gender identity, sexuality, you know, your relationship to power, all of those things, you know, I think are for lots of reasons, you know, this next generation of young people. God, I sound like such an old lady when I say that, but um <laughs> But I'm very heartened, you know, by my students. Mm. Yeah. And just to bring it back to like something you were saying at the beginning, like it is about having those conversations and like talking about it can be therapeutic and it can be so like helpful to everyone else who's yeah. going through the same thing as you. And yeah, I feel like that enormously what comes through in your book. And I, yeah, this was an amazing yeah, 100%. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and with our listeners. And I'm sure that there's like so much that can be taken away. Like even so much of the stuff that you were saying, I find myself being like, oh yeah, like I really relate to that and that kind of thing. So like, I'm sure that there's lots of people out there. And as you said, it's it's about that. It's about p putting words into those experiences so other people can see it and read it and be like, oh, okay, that's normal. Like, I'm not the only person that feels this way and it's completely okay to do this or feel this way or et cetera, et cetera. So thank you. Yes. And your book, Joy Rides Through the Tunnel of Grief, is out in September. September 1st, it will be out. You can pre-order it now, hopefully from your local indie bookstore or from the University of Georgia website. Okay, yeah, so everyone go check that out. And yeah, thank you again. Thank you.
Thank you so much to Jessica for joining us on our second episode in the mini series and shedding some light on honestly real time on <laughs> what it's like to have genuinely just had a baby fresh out the womb, yeah. essentially, as well as sort of like the decisions that lead up to that actually happening. And I mean, it hit close to home for me personally since like literally in the first moment when she was like, yeah, like being with my boyfriend. I was with my boyfriend since I was 18. And like, obviously we were like, oh, like we stayed together. Like our whole 20s kind of vibe. And like, oh. <laughs> anyway, her story did not end well. So hopefully. Yeah, I was wondering. Well, what no, it ended, it ended perfectly. It ended perfectly. So it's okay. Exactly. Everything works itself out in the end exactly so i hope you guys enjoyed that and jessica told you where to find her and her book coming out in september and as always you know where to find us sex with podcast on facebook tiktok instagram youtube thread and threads <laughs> and of course our website www.sexwithpodcast.com and you can find all of that there as well yeah and next week we're joined by Cecile, who's the brand director of Smile Makers Collection, the sex toy company. Maybe you guys even have one of their sex toys. And we're talking about having sex again after having a baby. So that's super interesting. And yeah, we hope you guys enjoy the rest of the mini series and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Sextras, presented by Honey Jane Wyatt and Maria Jose Hayodatiyi, produced by Mabel Productions. Thanks.